So Luke 22, starting in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, you are betraying the Son of Man with a kiss. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, Captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means believe. Answer me, or let me go. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, You are then the Son of God? He, so he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led, to him, led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Then Pilate heard from heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracles done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. 
Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and rulers and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus again, called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they, if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to the sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, 
a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arithmia, a city of the Jews, he, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in the tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. <clears throat> that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. And so that brings us up where we're going to be starting today, um, and we're actually going to Matthew uh, 28, starting in verse 1, Matthew 28. And so, you know, sometimes you go through the scripture, and, and as we go through verse by verse, there's so many um, points and things to slow down and study that you don't get the overall picture of what's going, through, going on. And so up to that point, this is Jesus. He's now died on the cross, and we have... Mary and Martha, they're going out to um, finish the preparation of the body for burial. They, uh, in the account in um, John, we have them going and seeing where the body was laid in the tomb. And so they desire, this is the, the first day after the Sabbath, the Passover, that they were allowed to go or could go and do work. This would be Sunday morning, which would be like our, their, our Monday morning, be the first day. So it had, technically the Sabbath ended Saturday at sundown, but being dark and a tomb, they waited for morning to go out and they're going out to prepare. And as they head out there to prepare, they're, they're debating who's going to roll the big stone away so they can even get access. Um, Matthew, unlike uh, the book of Luke we're going through was Matthew the tax collector. He would have had Roman guards. He would have had Roman contacts in the government. He would have Rome standing behind him when he was collecting taxes and kind of having his back. Some of that terminology comes from that thought. And so he would have that authority behind him. So he would have contacts with different guards over the years and stuff. And so Matthew uh, we'll see has these different accounts than Luke where he was more the doctor coming in and interviewing and some of the other gospels. But so we have some insight of what the guards were thinking, what's going on in this text as we go through that Matthew has differently and some of the things that were like happening in the Sanhedrin and stuff. And so, but in Matthew uh, 28, and, and we're going to go through the rest here, there's three things we kind of want to look at. We, and, instead of, um, we could go through very in depth and, and, um, look at all the evidence for Jesus actually dying on the cross, that he had passed away, that he had risen again. And um, you look at when people come to attack the Bible, there's all kinds of uh, historic documentation for the Bible, for the person of Jesus Christ. But if you can destroy the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, if you can disprove that, the rest doesn't matter. It, it, it's like any other religion out there. It's now a book with uh, good ideals or, or good proverbs on how to live and, and not a living Messiah, not a living God. And so um, there's, there's that aspect from it, but I really want to look at the scripture and look at the heart and, and what this means to us personally. You know, if, if you want to grow and, and know how to defend the gospel in these areas, um, it's easily 
provable. If you're willing to say there's a supernatural God and you come to the scriptures being okay with the fact that the supernatural can happen, it's easily provable. There's a, a book that has now become a movie by Lee Strobel called Creator for Christ, or Case for Christ. Very well done, very understood from a criminal aspect, from looking at historic text, and it really confirms Jesus Christ was a real man who died and rose and was, was died and raised from the dead, was seen. You know, at one point, he's seen for more than 5,000 people at once after he died. That's pretty conclusive. And so when he even comes to that conclusion that there's no doubt that Jesus Christ was alive after the cross and it was trying to prove that he actually died. And so we go through this and we look at it and, and so we're going to see some of those things and I, could, I, I love that stuff. I could go like History Channel style on you guys and get in all the, the details, but I really feel that's not what God's leading this morning as we look at this. So let's look with it. We're going to look at three important things. We're going to see that the payment for sin was made and not just made by Christ's death on the cross, but made in full and accepted, that he rose again and that he's alive today and, 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 and it's desiring a relationship and to be intimately known and for us to intimately know him. And so in verse 1 of chapter, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see his tomb. So they came out to finish again the burial and, and to finish preparing the body. And, and we know they're coming out. They, they do not know this Roman guard has been put over the tomb or they would not have gone. And it says in verse 2 here, we have, And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone from the door that it sat and sat on it. So you have... We see there's this Roman guard put there, and it's and this term guard, and, and even the records, so we'll go a little history geek on you, it's a, a group of 16 elite soldiers, okay? And these 16 elite soldiers, I mean, our, our military even goes back to these historic documents on how they did things for how we do things today. These are documents that are in our Pentagon, that they look at how these Romans did things. And they have these 16 Roman soldiers that were brought out. This is the Roman guard, the elite guard that would come out, okay? And, and these men were prepared. They had several weapons on them. Their primary weapon was a sling, which doesn't seem very deadly until you realize that in one swoosh they could hit, they were required to be in this guard, to hit a man 70 feet away with one 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 pound stone, be able to take that and fling it, hit a man, and they could differentiate between his head, his throat, and his chest on command. Aim. So that's pretty good with a rock and a sling. I'm not that good. Um, maybe the neighbor's windows would have been safer. I don't, you know, you think of things like that, but I mean, these men were trained. And as a primary weapon, you call a rock and a stone. Well, guess what? It's really hard in Israel to run out of rocks. It's a really good primary weapon to have. The other weapons they would have, they would have their short sword, they'd have a dagger, they'd also have a spear, and then they had a curved shield with five javelins in it. And when they were threatened, they could get back to back, hold their ground, and they were a very formidable force. And that was what was put over the tomb. We know they came and the, the Sanhedrin came and said, hey man, we already had enough problems with people believing this guy is Christ, unlike his disciples that have all fleed. 
He says he's coming back in three days. We want to, we got to finish this thing. We got to have this guard there. So you have this guard there, and they're sitting there, and, and this earthquake isn't from the stone moving. This is actually in the previous tense. So sometime in the morning, there's an earthquake. And, and there's been some things already going on. If you look, okay, the sky went dark. They're seeing dead people that raised from the dead, and, and you know, ghost kind of in a sense. And these things are happening. So early morning, there's an earthquake, which probably wakes Mary and them up, and they head out there. And here there's an angel that descended from heaven and came back and rolled the stone away from the door and sat on it. Now, this Roman guard sitting there, very formidable, okay? And it says in the other scriptures that they placed the seal of Rome over it. So either they tied some rocks and did a clay seal, but you have Caesar's seal on this stone. And this stone... Um, what they do is you can see some pictures of the ones in Israel that are kind of rounded out so they could really remove a pen and slide it in. Mind you, it was a rich man's tomb. You would want, you know, you talk about an alarm system, okay? A two to 3,000 pound stone in front of a door is a pretty good alarm system. It's going to take you some time to move it, to get through it, you know? And, and so the stone is there, it's sealed, and this angel shows up, and, and it, you know, and, and in the text, as you look at the different Gospels, he didn't just roll it up out of the way. It has got chucked a distance. So if you see these pictures, oh, this is the tomb in Israel of Jesus. Well, if the stone's close to the door, it's not that one. We know that from Scripture. And on top of that, you have this angel moves the stone out of the way, sets it aside, and just in case anybody thinks they want to put it back, I'm going to sit on it. Right? Like, you're a Roman soldier. If you lose the person you're guarding, it's death. This, if anybody in their group falls asleep, it's death. Okay? And so you think, wow, the consequence for lo- lo- losing somebody is death. What about a dead guy already? I mean, how do you lose a dead guy? You know, the consequences here, and you'll see, I mean, they're definitely freaked out. But now you have it. There's, like, no way of even trying to cover this up. This angel shows up, chucks the stone out of the way. He's sitting there on it. And so it's rolled back. It just, it's an interesting scene to think. And I mean, you look at all the legions of angels when he was born and all this stuff. There's one angel that comes, right? Not a legion down there. Just one angel shows up, kicks it aside, and sits on it. Like, what are you going to do about it? You know, it's kind of a kick in that sense. And so you see it. And, um, you know, again, this elite force. And, and um, I was kind of thinking that a minute ago I was walking around. We, we do have some security at the church. You know, you get concerns, nothing too concerned if God wants to take us home by whatever means he can. But, you know, we got Tony's got the little earpiece in. We got McKay out there. He is armed this morning. I noticed if he doesn't eat it by the end of the service, there's a banana in his back pocket. So you're aware we're safe. Let's throw that thing out on the floor and somebody's going to fall. No, and so anyways, but, you know, this is an elite force, these group of guys. And... They're there, and it says in verse 3, it says, His countenance was like lightning, and his clothes white as snow. So he's, he's just glowing there, right? It's like, how do you compare? It's like. It's not saying he was lightning. It's like. How do you compare? Wow, it's like lightning. You know, and he's sitting there, and he's, he's white as snow. He's bright. You know, you can't even stare at him. Your eyes are going to hurt. And the guards shook for fear of him. They sh- they're shaken. I mean, here you have this elite force, and this happens, and they're freaked out. You talk about getting put on that guard, okay? We have this guy who was supposedly raising people from the dead and healing people and all this and doing miracles. He's dead. Okay, we solved that problem, right? No, we need to go guard his body with this elite force. I mean, wait a minute. What are you guys worried about, 
right? Could you imagine if, if you were in some kind of military force or the military, you know, if you're sitting at home and the National Guard sets up around your neighbor's house and starts guarding it, would you be concerned? Like, what's in there? What did they find? I mean, was my neighbor, you know, building a nuclear bomb? You know, there are all these concerns. This, this force has got to be wondering, okay, why is this so serious that we're guarding it? Well, they found out, right? And so they're sitting there, and they are so scared. They're, they're shaken with fear. And they became like dead men. They became like dead men. So does that mean they just totally blacked out, like so scared they blacked out and they're on the ground? You know, or they're just paralyzed? You know, it doesn't really give. We just don't know, right? It's just so scared that they're like dead men. They, they might as well be dead. And here you, so you have this military force that's sitting there. They're, they're scared to death. And here you have the women who have come, and they, here they show up, and there's this angel, and, and by then, we know in the other Gospels, the, the, this military force got up and said, okay, we're out of here. We're dead men, because if we lose the body, but being around this guy, we're dead anyways. We, we better go. And they do make a, 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 an intelligent choice on where they go. We'll look at it later. But he sits there, and so you have the women, the, but, you know, verse 5, let's go there. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now, we have no record of him speaking to these soldiers at all. He just shows up, they're freaked out. This is bad, right? You have the women come, they're like, hey, you're seeking Jesus, you're good. Don't, don't be afraid. He speaks to the women, and he says to them, he is not here, for he is risen and he said, come and see the place where the Lord laid. Now, to the world, this fact that Jesus is risen to, is scary. That's a problem. We have an issue now. But to the believers, this is great joy. This is great news that he has risen. Um, again, these women came and they saw where he was laid. Do you think the testimony of that angel would have been enough? See, the thought can be as well, the stone was rolled away Jesus, so Jesus could get out. Jesus wasn't in there going, hey, hurry up, angel, I need to get out of here. No, he was gone. It wasn't there. And Jesus' resurrected body, and when he was risen, it wasn't like anything else. It is a new state of being than we've ever seen. We have Lazarus, who was raised from the tomb, but he died again. He was back in a body with those limitations. Jesus' body, he's there, there, talking, suddenly he's in the room. A tomb didn't have a problem, any of that. The whole reason the tomb was opened is for them to see. The whole reason the Roman guard was there, why do you think that was? Oh, because the Jews didn't want, no, no, no. That was God witnessing to all of Rome, all the authorities that, hey, there's going to be an empty tomb. You're going to be the witness of this. It was all about the witness there. And so it wasn't just here, here, let's have an eyewitness of what happened or an ear witness. I went there and an angel said, no. See where his body was laid. You guys saw him there, the door was closed, and now you're going to see him and he's not there. And the amazing thing is, if you were trying to fabricate this story, in that time when a woman's testimony didn't count for anything. First, you had a Jewish man's testimony was there, even in Rome, Roman first, then a, a Jewish man, then a Gentile, and then maybe... No, actually, a woman's testimony is not even allowed in court. So a woman could sit there and say, I watched this guy kill that guy. It doesn't count. But here, 
The first testimony of the risen Christ is given to who? To women. Not the pillars of the church. Not the saints and Peter and Paul and, and all these you know, pillars of the church. We have the first two people reveal themselves, God reveals himself to, Jesus reveals himself to, are women that served him. It's, just, it's amazing to see the heart all the way throughout the scripture and to even see it here where you have these two women and you would have never wrote that down. It wouldn't have made sense. It would have been, wait, wait, why would you pick the only people that couldn't give testimony to be the first two witnesses? That just doesn't make sense. And so we have it. And it says, he, he's not here. And so the risen Savior is so important. You can go, okay, well, wasn't it enough that Jesus came and lived and died on the cross for our sin? He made the payment. The payment was done. When, when he said it was finished on the cross, that was actually before he gave up his spirit. So when he said it was finished, the price for sin from the beginning of time to the end of time is paid for. The sins you have yet to have committed have been paid for. The sins from Adam were paid for. All paid for. It's all been complete. But how do you know it was received? The way we know it was received is because the Father, God, chose to raise Jesus from the dead. That was the acceptable thing. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, how do we know it was enough? He said it was enough. Do we just trust it was enough? We know because it was, it's not, it's like the cross was the payment. The risen Savior is him receiving the deed to us, to the earth. He is now has authority over it. He is the one who judges over life and death in the end. His opinion matters because he owns it all. It's like you make your last car payment. You expect, not in the state of California with the DMV, but you expect to get the pink slip in the mail at some point, right? You expect, you know, you make your last house payment. You would like to actually get the D. Now you can say, I own my house. You know, not many of us do. You know, it's like, yeah, well, who owns your house? Probably we, you know, whoever owns our, your house probably owns my house too. So, but you know, the deed, the payment was accepted, that it was payment in full for our sin. And we can have confidence in that. You look at all the religions around the world. They sit there and go, hey, look, this guy lived this way and it was a good way or a recommended or a prescribed way of living. You can look at the text in these things and look at what he wrote and look at what he did, but he's dead. And you don't know where he went. You have no proof of where he went. He's just gone. Can you imagine if Jesus died? It's like, yeah, we believe, and Jesus said we should live this way and this way, but he's, he's gone. You know, he's, he's not there. We have a risen and a alive Savior. One who desires to have a relationship with us, who speaks with us. You know, you could sit there and go, well, yeah, I, if you lived back in the day and you, you know, maybe could have had a relationship with Buddha if you were there at the time, but none of you are going to have no personal relationship with Buddha or any other, Muhammad or any of these people. They're gone. There's no relationship. There's no getting to know the person anymore than whatever little sayings or stuff they wrote down to, you know, you know, you can have... You could have a better relationship with a guy writing fortune cookies somewhere, frankly, than, than these men that people worship and follow and, and follow their teachings. And so we have a risen Savior. The historic evidence for Jesus on the cross 
is greater than anyone in here could imagine. When you sit down and you look at these things, okay, how many people think George Washington lived in here? We have a state, we have money, we have writings, we have less information about George Washington and proof that he was alive than Jesus Christ. Do you know that? We have more evidence that Jesus Christ walked on this earth and lived in his life than we do even George Washington. How do you know a couple hundred years ago it wasn't a big hoax? That's more provable than that Jesus didn't walk on the earth. Okay, how about we just take one historic event like the assassination of Lincoln? We have more proof that Jesus rose from the dead than that Lincoln is assassinated. Did you know that? Isn't that amazing to think we have more historic evidence on the resurrection of Jesus Christ than those simple things? You know, William Shakespeare. Anybody hear of him? He doesn't even come into one-tenth of the information we have about Jesus Christ that he even existed. How did you know it wasn't some girl writing in a name, guy's name? To, we don't know. It could have been a group of people that wrote it and wrote it under a certain name, book club or something. We have no clue. We know less about... We, know, we don't know anything about that guy's life, really. They don't even know exactly when he's born. It's a guess. You know? You guys have read writings from William Shakespeare? Well, you know, it's interesting to slow down and look at this and to know that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is alive. Verse 7, it says, Go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before them into Galilee, where you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so before he had told them, Hey, I will be with you. There will be a time when you guys will scatter, you'll disperse, and I will see you again in Galilee. Here are these great 12 men, right? These great 12 men, he says, he's told them, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise in three days. I'm going to see you again after all this craziness goes on, remember? I'm going to see you again. And go and tell them, hey, I'm coming. Right? So here you got the first and, and the greatest call on every Christian's life. Come and see, go and tell. Show and tell. Right? Look what God has done. He is risen from the dead. The first people given a charge to share the gospel, the good news, are two women. Not the pillars of the church. I think that's amazing. And it's just when you sit down and you think about that, to be able to come, everything going on up to that point, you talk about being shaken. Here the Messiah's come. Somebody, the world's supposed to change and all this horribleness happens. All this darkness happens. And you're there and you're going to the tomb to finish preparing the body and now there's an angel and you're going to share this good news. And so they went quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples the word. They're, they're Great joy, and they ran. They're not waiting, they're excited, but yet there's great fear. What an interesting emotion, right? I don't know, I was trying to think, have any of you guys ever had in here this emotion of great fear and joy? I scared the crud out of Heidi when we were getting married. I was so fearful about getting up on that stage, people looking at me. I, I was scared, but it was very joyful. 
I was joyful to be there. But when I came, we came like through the back and we, we stood next to each other. And I'm like going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. She's thinking like, oh my gosh, am I going to get married or not? I guess <laughs> she's worried I was going to bail. <laughs> I don't know. That was, that was not my intent. It wasn't very nice to her. But, you know, I was just fearful of getting up there in front of people. At the time, I did not know what my brother had written on the bottom of my shoes. Praise God, half of it were all up, wore off. You know, we, we, we just did knelt down to do a communion. On the bottom of my shoes, he wrote, please help. I think by the time I got up there, I think it was just help left, and it wasn't very visible, so it was okay. You know, the last thing you want to do is bend down with your back to people and have them laugh at you. Family. Anyway, so you sit there, and this great fear, with fear and great joy, they ran to share. And many times it's kind of interesting, when you look at sharing the gospel, I have that feeling. When you go and you're sitting there and somebody's there and there, here's this point, And you see God moving and the Holy Spirit's pressing upon you and you're like, should I share the gospel with this person? You kind of do it with fear and trembling, you know. Get up here to teach. There's a level of fear, you know. Get up and, and, and share the gospel and, and teach. And, and it's not just uncomfortable, but yet there's a joy. When you study through and you see God working in his heart and what he's doing and you just, wow, I want to share. It's amazing what God's doing. You know, as, as we were driving home and I'm sitting there in the car and, and John and Mona are with us and I'm looking at his brother Bernardo and I just tell the Holy Spirit's moving and I'm moving and I'm just see it on his face. I'm going, I want an opportunity to share. And I was like, okay, you know, point, hey, have you ever, do you ever wonder what the Bible's about? Have you ever heard this before? Have you ever thought or what does it take to you know be saved what does it mean to have a relationship here let me explain it to you you know there's a level of you know just kind of fear there but man I want you to know the joy and the truth I want you to know the savior I you know excited to see and sadly sometimes we just let the fear overwhelm us where we don't share at all but Jesus is alive, and we're going to see this. He's not just risen, but he's alive and, and wants a relationship with me, with us, with me, with you. Look at verse 9, and it says, As they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by his feet and worshipped him. It's amazing to see. Here they go to share the gospel, and Jesus meets them on the way. Right? And you start to go serve God, and it's like, Jesus shows up. You know, sometimes it's like, okay, God, I'll go if you're in this, but give me a sign that you're in this. Amazing how many times I seem to, you, you, you step out and, and God's going to be there and with you. You know what I mean? It's, there's a, that fear, but that fear goes away when he's there. And he says rejoice. This word rejoice, it, it, it's really like, hey, dude, what's up? I mean, in our language, it's kind of a weird translation. is isn't like, hi, I am Jesus, I have returned, or no great speech. You know, they're running down the road, and, and how quick are they moving? And he's like, hey, guys, over here, hi. You know, what's up? I'm here. I mean, what a simple thing. I just, I get a kick out of it. You know, you, you know triumphal infantry, we're, we, we watch the movie, you know, and the, the villain right before they go to attack, you know, he's trying to give this big old long speech. You know, another guy can't even hear him, so it makes it funny. You know, he's like, well, I'm going to do this and destroy this, and I'm going to take you out. And the other guy's like, well, I can't hear you too far away. You know, you'd think, you know, if this was written by men, there would be this dramatic, you know, he would come and lower down into the temple and give a speech. See, I told you so. Now, watch out. You know, two women on a road and shows up and says, hi, guys. I mean, 
I love it. It's just how it is, and and how our Savior so easily comes to us, and 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 you know, I love the fact of who our Savior is all through Scripture. You see, so many times in in churches and in religious, they they start to build altars, they start to build these things, and they make God so unapproachable. It's not God saying, hi, you can just wake up and read your Bible in the morning. No, you need to go through the steps. You need to be in a holy place. You've got to have a certain prayer closet. Or if you walk into the church, you've got to, whatever, take your shoes off and all this high church, this and curtains and veils and all these things. That's not our Messiah. Our Messiah is personal. He's alive. He met them. Why? They already had the message. He met them because he wanted to hang out with them. He wanted them to see him. He wanted them to know him personally. Not just carry a message, but this is a personal relationship. It's a real, live Jesus. Not that I've just risen him off in heaven. I'm waiting for you guys. Hopefully you get here. I'll catch you later, you know. I'm alive, I'm up here, but you can't reach me. No, I am totally reachable. I'm right here. And they bow down appropriately at his feet and just hold on. They didn't just bow down at his feet. They're not letting go. You know, you ever have little kids and they, you know, you're trying to walk. They only do that when you have groceries, something hot in your hands, but, you know, they wrap around your legs. You're like, ah. You know, it's like football. It didn't matter how big the guy was. If you can just get his legs, he ain't going nowhere. And that's why they got Jesus' feet. They're like, okay, we're running to do this, but now we got you by your ankles. You ain't going nowhere. You know, and, and he's probably like, come up here, hug me. I don't need you staring at my feet. You know, I'm up here, you know. It's amazing to see this, that Jesus is there and in this relationship. He's alive and he desires this relationship. And very much just like them, he desires that same relationship with us. And in verse 10 it says, And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. It's amazing. I mean, you think about what had just happened. Peter saying, oh, I'll never deny you. And them scattering from the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter looking from a distance. None of them showed up at the tomb, you know. They've all dispersed. And Jesus didn't come back and say, hey, go tell those guys of little faith, I'm back, hello. You know, how about you remind them all the times I told them I was returning? I mean, I was going across, remember this, remember this, remember what I said a couple nights ago, you know, Passover, hello, you know, go tell those men with very short memory loss, bad sense of direction, I'm here, you know, no, he calls them what for the first time, brethren, 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 I'm not above you, I'm there, here, I have died, I've risen again, and I'm not God back in heaven, unreachable. Now I'm your brother. I, I am putting, he's not just the Messiah. He's not the teacher. Now he's saying, I am on the same. I am right next to you. I am right with you. I am your brother. Go call my family. Now, out of all this and all that, we have a Messiah. We have a Savior. And now we have a brother in Christ because now we are all, because of the cross, have given the right and authority to be the children of God just as much as Christ. Why? Because he took his righteousness and gave it to us. Isn't that hard to grasp? That you have the same access 
to God the Father, you have the same rights as eternally and this inheritance as Jesus Christ? That's what he's accomplished. We're his brethren. We have the same inheritance and heir as in Jesus Christ. Now Jesus spends the next 40 days. We have 10 accounts of him with the disciples. We have one account in uh, uh, Corinthians uh, 15.6 where he appears to over 5,000 people at one time. And we have this Savior and he's there. But there's a point where he comes where, yeah, he's not walking with us. It's not like you go down the street and you find him. He's not in an apartment in Boston or anywhere else. We have in John this account, um, John 16, 7 and 8, if you would like to turn there. John 16, verses 7 and 8, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I... Depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is the Holy Spirit. Jesus left, and he's not physically here. It's not like you can go walk up to him in that sense. And he has sent the Holy Spirit that now dwells in us. If you know the Father, you know him. And if you know Jesus, you know the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Jesus dwells in you. And now instead of this relationship of, it's great to know somebody, but he isn't with you always, right? Now Jesus goes and goes, okay, this intimate relationship I have with them and this, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to sit and prepare a place for you, but I'm sending my Holy Spirit, who's going to be my representation, who's going to keep us in communication, who's going to put us, and I'm going to bring him, and when you accept me, he's going to come into your heart and dwell within you. The relationship even Mary, Martha, and the twelve had with Jesus compares nothing to the relationship we have with Jesus Christ by accepting him into our lives. And you will want to talk about a personal relationship. You know, you, you think of, you know, he compares us to his bride. You know, and we, we, we've, we do some, you know, got some opportunities to do some couple counseling and stuff, and, and, and one of the things I love to ask is, have you hated her yet? Have you hated him yet? They look at me like, what? I said, yeah, you're going to hate each other. And you need to learn to, at some point, there's going to be a point where you horribly dislike each other. And that's a good point to get through and learn to still love each other after and learn that you can still love each other after that and continue and grow. It's a good step in a relationship, you know, don't... You won't find it in a book. Make sure you hate the other person sufficiently at some point, you know. And at first they look at me like, what? And then Heidi confirms it. Oh, yeah, I wished he was dead a couple times. And I'm like, boom! And it was just like, like she didn't even mean to say it, just shot out. So it was like, you know, I got my you know, back up there on that one. You know? And it's the truth, right? But yet, what, what happens? Well, the rose-colored glasses, the, oh, we're in love, and that comes off in the reality of life. When you got married, you married a sinner. They're not perfect. They sin, and they sin against you, and they're hurtful. Just remember, your spouse doesn't need the blood of Christ any more less than you. You're just as much of a sinner as they are. Just as much forgiven as they are. 
But when you look at that and you realize that Christ dwells in us, there isn't a corner of your mind, there isn't a spot in your life, there isn't a place you are where he does not dwell, that he does not know. He knows what you look like in the morning with your makeup off. Worse than that, he knows your heart. (laughs) And you sit there and you think, he knows me that well. He desires to dwell in me. He desires not to just dwell in me, even in my wretched, wicked state, but he desires to make me righteous and pure. And he's given me, because he died on the cross, because he's risen again, because he has sent this helper, he can make me righteous. He can change my heart. He can give me power over sin. He's a living God, and he's a God that works in our hearts and in our lives. He's not just a God that gave come to give us, you know, purpose, power, and prosperity. He came that we would take up our cross and follow him and lay that old man down. And because he's risen again, we can take up our cross and follow him. And that old man can die and we can be resurrected. And we will be resurrected in a new body. And, and you look at these things and it's amazing to see that as wicked as our hearts are and all those things, he loves us that intimately and our Savior has that intimate of a relationship. It, you know, being raised in the church, knowing Christ from a young age, you can forget it. Sometimes you forget. I cannot imagine if the question was, uh, I was looking at a thing that, um, um, who posted that? Dave Gusick posted, and it was um, just a thing, a Bible study or a resurrection message somebody did. What um, back 100 plus years ago, what, what, what would the world look like without the resurrection of Christ? And forget about what the world socially and all those things would look like without the resurrection of Christ. What would my life look like? It's scary. Really, I, I know my heart. It's wicked. And if God wasn't working and changing me and creating it, oh, it would be bad. I'm glad I have a personal relationship. I'm glad he's long-suffering and willing to work with me and work in our hearts and change us. And I get to see firsthand, not hear, see firsthand what he's done in my life. And I get to share it. And that's what's more powerful than any argument that has ever come down. You can get in a theological debate, but when you have somebody that says, I was once this and now I'm that. And people go, you're a liar. What do you mean you're a liar? You got a kick out of it. Um, I'm going to use Zach again as an example. Is he in here? No. He's out there. Okay, good. No. He's at Armour Roofing where he's worked, right? And they're talk, he's talking to him and he's witnessing to the guys I've, I've known for years and have shared with and got to pray with, you know, and because people I've known at Armour Roofing for a year and he's working with them throughout the week and he goes, yeah, I used to use drugs and they're like, they laugh. Yeah, right. You know, come on, you're just like a little preppy white boy. There's no way you were on drugs. They're like, yeah, they don't believe him. It's a kick. You know, Why? Because he's a new creation. He's totally different. They just don't get it. You're just a Bible thumper, right? You know? I hear you. You weren't on drugs. You know? And he's like, no, I wasn't just on drugs. I'd make anything you guys look like shameful. I mean, I was good at it. I mean, it's just amazing. God comes in, and that's a testimony. Nobody, there's nobody there. You know, you look, okay, statistics of people getting off meth, 5%. Not with Jesus. 
I bet you 5% of them got saved. <laughs> you sit there and you look at that testimony of what God's doing in our hearts and our lives. And then when you sit here and you go, okay, Jesus died, he rose again. How do we know we're saved? How do we know we have this relationship? Is because we have the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The Bible says, in him you also tr- are, or in you also trusted after you heard the words of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you have believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is gar- the guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchase possession to the praise of the glory of God. How do you know you're a believer? How do you know you're saved? How do you know without a doubt? You know, you get people, well, I don't know if I'm really saved. I don't really know. I'm not sure. Is the Holy Spirit in you? Is he working? Is he speaking to you? Do you have a relationship with God? Guess what? No matter how messed up you might think you are, how blew it, messed up you've sinned or fallen, if the Holy Spirit's in you, working in you, convicting you, you're sealed. You have that relationship. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's dwelling in you, it's a guarantee of an inheritance. The same inheritance as being a brethren of Jesus Christ. That same there. And we, and we sit there and we, we can sometimes sit down and, and start to doubt these things. Start to doubt a relationship and go, I don't know where we're at. And sometimes it is. We, we constrain our relationship. You know, if, if uh, you know, I used the, used the example of before, if I told you, hey, I'm married, I got a ring on. See my ring? So everybody knows I'm married, I have a ring, and I show up home on Sundays for a little while, hang out with some people, hang out with my wife, and then I don't see her until next Sunday. Yeah, that's going to be an unhealthy relationship. And at some point I might get home and she might not be there. It doesn't matter if I have a ring on, wear a cross, or any other thing. It's a personal relationship. And at the same token, though, when you sit there and you go, where is my relationship with Christ? Is he a living God? Do I know him? Is that relationship real in my life? Could you imagine me and my wife go out? I love this example. God uses marriage as an example all the time. But could you imagine me and my wife go out for our anniversary dinner and I'm sitting there with a picture of her, staring at the picture. She's sitting across from me. I'm staring at She's going to get offended at a point. Why do you like that picture? I mean, you really like, you know, I've gotten a little older maybe. I don't That'd be weird. If I'm now coming, you know, you see me around and I just got pictures of my wife and I'm talking, oh yeah, this is my wife Heidi and you come in church and I introduce you and I say, show you a picture on my phone and she's standing next to me. That'd be odd that it would, just, just, it would show that there's some kind of gap in your relationship. Where are you at? You know, and you see this in many times when you see people where they now start to cling on to relics or idol, you know, whatever, pictures or crosses. And that's some of the things that grieve me around Easter. You start to see all this church tradition trickling in. Yeah, it's, it's a great time to remember. But remember that he is risen, he's alive, and get rid of the symbolism. Take Christ, know him. When you meet somebody, don't go, oh yeah, this is, this is look, 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 here's a picture of the tomb. and here, No, he's living in me. He's changed me. I've risen again with him. We are in a resurrected state. We went from this state and we're in a new state. You know? It's amazing, even the Jews, the Jewish people, and for history, how many times they've argued against resurrection. You know, Jesus was resurrected and, you know, the different way you even bury people. You know, you can't cremate him, you can't this. All the church tradition got in it. 
You know, one argument I was listening to against the resurrection and us, us being resurrected with Christ is, well, what happens if a missionary goes out and a cannibal eats him, and then that guy dies, but his dad eats him, then how are you going to get the molecules? How is God going to raise your body from the dead? We believe, I like Joe Fus. Joe Fus goes, if you can believe, I mean, if you can believe that we can get DNA out of a mosquito, out of a piece of amber, we can get enough information to create a dinosaur, why are you going to argue that God can't raise the dead because those bodies are long gone and this and that. However you want to bury somebody, bury them that way, you know. Cremation's cheaper. And guess what? If you're against cremation, you bury somebody long enough in the ground, guess what they turn to? Ash. So, anyways, being my fire background, you'll learn that uh, fire, all of fire is, is rapid oxidation instead of slow oxidation accompanied by heat and light. But um, everything's going back to dust. But you look at these things and go, all the church tradition and everything else, the important thing, and this is where I do not have a problem with Easter, is because he said, what was communion about? Remember this transaction that's going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm gonna, my body's going to be broken for you on the cross. And I'm going to have the forgiveness of sin. My blood's going to be... Do this often. Once a year on Easter is not enough. Taking communion when we do it once a month here at the church is not enough. You need to take time at home and remember, hey, Lord, you came and you died for me, and I am confessing. I'm going to lay down my cross. I'm going to bury that old man, and that old man needs to go away on the cross. And I, want to be, I need to be recreated. I need to have a new heart. I need a new mind. I need to be renewed in your word. And that's the message then that's the gospel. Shouldn't it just be spoken on Sunday? Shouldn't it be just spoken once a year? But repeat it often. Go and tell. As the scripture continues on, it goes through and he, he explains um, the, the soldiers, they go off and, and uh, they, they're smart. They run not back to Rome, the Roman garrison. They go to the Jewish leaders, right? Okay, this guy you wanted us to meet and was doing these things, we're letting you know he rose from the dead. So we got a 50-50 chance if you're going to be happy with that or really mad. Okay? But we also know if you're happy with that, you might protect us because we're going to get killed for not guarding this guy. Secondly, if we go back there and we find out you're not happy with it and you wanted to cover it up, well, you're not going to want us to get put to death for losing a body either we got to still be alive to hold the lie. And so they go back, and because this always makes great sense, you know, I'm not a lawyer, you know, but I, I can even figure this one out because I have kids who lie. You know, they said, hey, we're going to give you a lot of money, and what you're going to say is you were asleep because we, nobody would believe that these 12 disciples, great fishermen, came and stole the body. So you guys got to be fast asleep, and you're going to say the disciples stole the body. You know what I mean? So that'd be like coming home and saying, your kid's there and go, yeah, who ate the cake off the counter? I don't know. I was just fast asleep, and the dog did it. I watched him. We were all asleep, but we saw the disciples do it. You're right? And the funny thing is, this saying continues. It even says in Scripture, hey, this was a common saying in Matthew's time, and even later, 300 years later, they're still saying, oh, yes, definitely these guys were, that's a lie that was still going around. It's like, do you realize how, I'm not a lawyer again, but I've had kids. 
And then the great commission to go out, share the gospel, and making disciples of all nations. Making disciples more than just making converts. It's taking the time to be involved in people's lives. To encouraging them in the word, to be encouraged by them in the word, and growing in the knowledge of our Lord. Being around other sinners saved by God's grace, and having grace for each other, encouraging each other in the Lord. That's what we're called to do. See and tell. See what God's going to do in your life. This next week, these next years, what is God doing in your life? What of any value is there in this? There are 12, 11 men left, but including Paul, 12 men that were willing to give everything up for this. Take up your cross, follow me. Matthew 16, 24 says, The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, taking up his cross and following me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're alive, that you're alive in our lives and our hearts, that you speak to us. That you didn't just save us and leave us, Father, but you saved us and loved us. And continue to love us, continue to walk with us, continue to make us righteous, continue to grow us, Father. We thank you that you love us so dearly, knowing us, paying for our sin and not abandoning us. We thank you that we are your bride and that you hold us precious which is just such a mystery, Father. We thank you for who you are, that you're willing to come and and die for our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.